Morning Liberty. Well, hello there, everybody. My name is Nate, and this is the Good Morning Liberty podcast. Guys, if you listened to the episode yesterday, then you know that today I am by myself. Normally, my best friend and partner in Liberty, Charlie, is on the podcast with me, but today you just got me. And that's why for the intro, we used a much better song, which was a song from my band instead of Charlie's band, because I can get along with, I can get away with that today. Now that he's not not here, you know, finally freedom. I've found it. So subscribe to the podcast if you have not done that yet. A lot of people listen through our website, finding us for the first time through some of the articles that we post. They get to our website. They listen on the podcast player that's on the top of our website. And if you are doing that right now, then we recommend that you find us on your podcast app and hit subscribe because we release a new episode every single day of the week except for this week, where obviously we will be on vacation eating so much food. It will just be disgusting, the amount of turkey I'm going to eat tomorrow, but I'll do it for my country. So let's talk about, let's talk about something. Let's talk about liberty and libertarianism and this idea about, uh, just say how much we're moving towards socialism in this country. And when you're talking to people about some of these ideas that we have, say personal liberty, say small government, no government for some people, uh, not liking regulations whatsoever, not liking taxes because taxation is theft. We have a lot of ideas that we put out there on a daily basis. And there's one thing that we can pretty much always get accused of as a libertarian. And I understand the accusation. I, I completely do. And that's that we don't have any emotions about the subjects that we're talking about. You know, a lot of these problems that everyone has, they, they are real problems. That's something that we try to talk about a lot. Um, healthcare is too expensive. We agree with that. Absolutely. I think all libertarians or conservative Republicans or libertarian conservatives would agree with the fact that healthcare is too expensive. But we tend to talk about things on a purely economic level. Uh, you know, maybe just using pure logic, objectivism, things like that to approach all these problems. Which, obviously, I agree, is the actual correct way to approach these problems. Because you don't typically make good decisions when you're making decisions purely based on what your emotions are. That's how you can get a lot of really bad decisions, a lot of really bad laws. That's how a lot of our laws that we have in this country were created, was through thinking about what your emotions were on a specific subject and then deciding to craft a law that would tamper down that emotion afterwards and make you feel better. And that's what a lot of people typically want to do. I think that's what a lot of people on the left or the socialist left want to do. The one thing that we're always fond of saying, we say it every time we go out and speak in public and a lot on the podcast, is that people who are democratic socialists, people who are leftists, um, I don't think that they're inherently bad people. I don't think that they want 100 million people to starve to death. I don't think that they want to put any different people in prison camps or you know any of the number of things that you can imagine that we fear 
when we think about those kinds of governments and those kinds of policies. I don't think that today's socialists want that to happen. What I do think is that everyone wants the same thing. What we all want is a better life. We, all, we want a better life for ourselves and for our families, for our kids, for the people that we care about, and for everyone else that's in society. We all want that, even socialists. And they're moving towards something that they think is the best thing to bring prosperity to the most amount of people. I truly believe that. Even though we spend a lot of time talking negatively about their policies, obviously we vehemently disagree with all of their policies. But it doesn't mean that we want different things. So I, I think that we we all need to make that clear because when we can come to an agreement on the goal, on the outcome, then we can at least start to have a conversation with one another about how to get there. Now we all we disagree on what the what the solution's going to be. And we disagree on what some of the problems are. Maybe sometimes socialists don't actually want these policies because they think it will help poor people. Maybe they emotionally want these policies because they hate rich people, which I do think is the case a lot of the time. I think that an inherent vice of socialism and of people who support that is a hatred, envy, or whatever you want to call it, of people who have more than they do. But it also doesn't mean that they don't want to, to help poor people with some of their policies. Now, we also feel that way. I, I'm a libertarian. I don't know what you guys are that are listening to the podcast. We have a lot of Republicans that listen to the podcast, a lot of libertarians, anarcho-capitalists, anarchists, whatever they are. We're pushing an idea that we believe will help the most amount of people. The good part about that is that we've got a little bit of history on our side. Actually, a lot of history. We have like all of history on our side. And the fact that the only way that we've seen people escape poverty, the only way that we've seen people come from nothing and go into something the most amount of people for for ordinary people is through a free market is through free enterprise free trade and so that's why we feel the way that we do about everything i've told this story before but I had a really funny back and forth with with my wife and i was talking to her about how people you know the problem with socialists and people on the left is that they they, they're just emotional, and they just make all of their decisions based on emotions all the time. And you just shouldn't think that way. You shouldn't make decisions that way. And, and she said, you know, yeah, that's true, but libertarians are emotional also. And I was like, what do you mean? This is ridiculous. She goes, well, you're just really, really emotional about liberty and the free market. And she had me on that one. That's true. But what I want to figure out is, is why why is all of this really important why do we why do we feel the way we do about everything because we do feel this way we are emotional about it whether we all like to admit it or not we are emotional about these things why is that and how can we also use that to sway the opinions of other people 
Because I think when other people look at libertarians, they think of people who just don't care about anyone else besides themselves. That's a pretty common, pretty common view of people who are libertarian, small government, maybe you're conservative, whatever it is. You really just don't care about people who need help. You just care about helping yourself. And I understand how people can come to that conclusion. I do. I really do. So what we have to do is we have to take responsibility for the fact that that is the view of people who are libertarian, that that is what it looks like from an outsider's perspective. We have to take responsibility for the fact that we have not done a good enough job marketing our message. We have not done a good enough job explaining why we believe what we believe, who it's going to help besides ourselves, and why it's the best thing for the most amount of people. And we can do that on an emotional level, whether we want to or not. We did this talk um, for Young Americans for Liberty. We did a what's called a breakout session, and we, d- we spoke for about 45 minutes in front of a room full of kids at a Young Americans for Liberty. And we talked about psychology. We talked a lot about how most people think. And how most people think um, does boil down to emotions first. Like the bulk of people, almost all of them, think that way. Like 90% think predominantly and make decisions predominantly based on how something feels. Libertarians are not good at that overall. I'm not saying that that's wrong, but it is, it is the case. So instead of trying to change the way that 90% of the world thinks and feels and makes decisions, I think that we should take the responsibility for fixing the marketing of our message. This message of liberty and free markets and individualism, we can make that argument on an emotional level, even if that's not what comes naturally to us, even if it makes logical sense, it makes, it makes a logical sense that taxation is theft or logical sense that you, sh- you don't want the government to be involved in healthcare because that's too dangerous of a proposition and it's tough to change the government that always breeds corruption and they're very inefficient at everything that they do. Everything that the government does gets more expensive. You can make all of these purely logic, non-emotional-based arguments, and you can be completely right the entire time. But the problem is, that doesn't exactly matter. It really doesn't matter, because you're not talking to people in the way that they're going to understand what you're saying. Because while we're talking about how the government shouldn't control healthcare, or how we should have school choice, or the government shouldn't be involved in education whatsoever, or we shouldn't dictate what wages people get paid. Any of the things that we talk about, we can make great, great arguments and be right about all of those things, and it doesn't matter whatsoever. Because while you're talking to someone about all of that, they're not thinking about what you're thinking about. They're thinking about the person who has cancer and can't afford to get any type of treatment. So they're going to die sooner than someone who has money to pay for treatment and how that's unfair. 
or how someone is having to pay $500 to $1,000 a month for their insulin because they have type 1 diabetes. They're thinking about problems like that, how a family in a, in a poor community wouldn't, you know, wouldn't have a school there if, if, there weren't, if it weren't for the public school. They wouldn't be able to afford to go to school or some, something like that. How maybe someone would only be paid $3 an hour if there wasn't a minimum wage, and there's no way that they could ever survive on that, and this just isn't possible. And that's what people are thinking about when we're making the arguments that we make. They're not thinking about these things in the way that we do. So we have to find a way to make these arguments in a manner that will actually speak to them. That is what I that is I that is what I want to try and task you guys with doing. Try and figure out, come up with some stories. Try and figure out some situations that you can find where these policies, these just say socialist style policies have led to terrible things. And we can all point to the past and be completely right about that. You could also point to right now and make arguments about things that are happening right now where these policies are actually hurting people. They're hurting people that they're actually aiming to help. There's plenty of plenty of situations that you can come up with. I've told you guys before, um, you know, I, I grew up on a farm, but I, you know, my parents were divorced, so I was split between two homes. I lived with my mom during the week and with my dad on the weekends. My mom and I were really poor, and actually my dad was pretty poor when I was growing up too. My mom and I were really poor. She's a school teacher. She hadn't gone to college at the time that my parents divorced, so I remember when they got divorced, she used to have to take me to school with her. And at that point in time, it would be totally acceptable for me to sit in the car and listen to her radio all day while she was in school. Or I remember going into her classes with her and her instructors would be nice enough to let me sit in the back of the room quietly. And that's how she was able to make it through school. And of course, she had student loans for forever to pay for after that, still paying for some of them, I think. And she became a school teacher. She taught for 25 years. Some things happened during that time. A couple missteps that happened. You know, as a teacher, you're in a union. You're in the teacher's union. And part of that union, which they will sell as this is a benefit to everyone, part of that union is that, well, one thing is they would have this thing called tenure. So if you have been there for just say four years, then nearly impossible to fire you if you didn't do some kind of terrible offense to, to some of the students. Really impossible to fire you after that point in time. Also, that dictates how much money you get paid every year based on the amount of time that you've been working. And that's, that's, that's great in a lot of ways. That helps a lot of people in a lot of ways. It ensures that people's, that the teacher's pay goes up as time goes on. It can ensure that the teacher isn't going to get fired uh, because she got a few bad batches of students that just wouldn't listen and wouldn't perform and wouldn't take tests, and then she got fired because they weren't doing well or something like that. So it protects the teachers in that sense. It also can hurt people. It can hurt a lot. 
one way that tenure can hurt a lot is after you get that, um, you don't necessarily have to be a good teacher for a while after that. Now you can go to your job and teach your lessons pl- lesson plans, kind of. And, uh, you know, don't do anything terrible at the school that's going to get you fired. And you can teach for 30 years and never worry about it. It doesn't ensure that you're going to do a good job. It doesn't ensure that you're going to care, that you're going to try to get better during that time. Because you're working in a system where you can't be fired and it's dictated to the school that your pay has to go up a certain amount based on the amount of years that you've been teaching. The problem with that is that at some point in time, for a lot of people, because teachers are people too, they're human beings just like everyone else, that can lead to um, a reduction in effort, a reduction in caring about you know the outcomes of the students. It can lead to you doing the bare minimum that will ensure that you don't get fired. And so you can teach for your 25 years and get your nice teacher retirement and live off your, you know, the, your state pension and retirement, whatever, for, for the rest of your life. Now, that might be good for the teacher, but is that good for the students? Is that good for all the people that go through those classes? If you're working inside of a system that does not incentivize you to do a better job, that can be really bad for a lot of students. You would also think that the law requiring that you get paid for the amount of years that you've worked would be a good thing for teachers because you want to incentivize people to be teachers, right? Obviously, they're necessary, the most important part of our society, one of them. So you want to incentivize them to go to school and become a teacher and you have a guaranteed pay scale that you're going to make throughout your career. So that all sounds good. But then you look in some of the personal situations of the teachers and What happens if you decide that you need to move someday? What if something happens to someone in your family and you want to move to a different area and you have to switch schools? Or you, something bad happens in the town that you live in and you decide that you want to switch and go to a different school district. You don't like the people that you're working with. Well, the problem at that time is that you can lose, you lose your tenure because you're not at the school anymore. Um, And then you're, your potential to get fired uh, goes up after that. And there's a thing that uh, you can get fired before your tenure kicks in, basically. So they're, they're inclined to get rid of you before they can't ever get rid of you. And where this can hurt is with the rule dictating that people get paid a certain amount based on the amount of years that they have. So now you're going around to these different poor school districts in a state like Illinois, where the state is uh, basically bankrupt, and they're bankrupt without the word being attached to them, you know? And uh, so you're going around, all these budgets are getting cut at the schools, and then they have a teacher who's been teaching for 20 years that comes into the school. And they got to make sure that they can afford, that they can afford that. So what ended up happening with my mom is that even though she is an amazing teacher, she was at, she was a victim of the fact that the school districts couldn't afford her anymore. Because of the pay scale that is dictated by the teacher's union, if she had 15, 20 years of experience, they're required to pay you a certain amount of money. And since their budgets were getting cut, she could not compete with a new teacher that was just coming out of school. 
So she had a hard time finding places to work then because no one was going to hire a teacher that they were going to have to pay twice as much as someone who just got out of school. Because why? You know, a little bit better test scores? Do you think it matters anyway? This is a, this is a government-ran operation. Outcomes don't really matter that much. So you're not incentivized really to hire those teachers that are just better. You're, you're really dictated by how much, what your budget is and what you can pay. The problem with that was that it ended up leading to her having a hard time finding a school to go work at because none of them could afford to pay the amount of years that she had been teaching. And that was a problem. I was mad about teachers' unions at that point in time because my mom even told the schools. She said, I will, I will work for less. Like I'll, I'll, I'll take a, a lower salary if I can just get a job here teaching. And they said, I'm sorry, we can't do that legally. We, we, we literally cannot pay you less money. We're supposed to pay you $50,000 a year. And even though you're saying you'll work for 30 so you can have a job, we can't do that. We're not legally allowed to do it. So that's led to a lot of, a lot of bad situations. There's emotional arguments to make on these, on these different topics. And we all need to be mindful of the fact that that's what people want to hear. That's actually the best thing to talk, you know, if someone's talking about how teachers have to have this union because if it weren't for that, they wouldn't get paid certain amounts. And if they couldn't get tenure, and then they would end up getting fired when their pay scale went up and things like that. Well, your counter argument doesn't, necessarily need to be that taxation is theft and the government shouldn't be involved in public schooling. You could come in with a counter argument like the story that I just told that is a absolute true story and it is the cherry coded version that would not all of the even more worse things that I'm not going to go into right now. I'm going to talk a lot about what happened when she went to the most recent school that she taught at. Uh, on one of our podcasts here in a couple of weeks, I'm just trying to gather all the information to make sure that I tell the story properly, but it is, it is not a good story. And it says a lot about our society and our public school system. I mentioned that my dad was a farmer. So let's, we'll talk about the minimum wage. You know, people, you're talking to someone on the left, right? And well, if you don't institute a minimum wage, then people are just going to pay pay their workers $3 an hour. No one's going to have enough money to get by. Actually, we got to make sure we pay them $15 an hour because if you've got kids and all this other stuff, then you need to be able to be paid a minimum, uh, a, a living wage. Uh, so we got to make sure that everyone pays all their employees at least $15 an hour. And they can make an emotional argument about someone who's got four kids and they work at Walmart and they and they can't pay for their medications and they can't pay for the rent and and proper amount of food and they can make all these emotional arguments about how these people are barely getting by working 70 hours a week to try and pay for their family and that's an that's an actual argument and it's a problem and it's something that that deserves a solution it definitely does but there's a flip side to that argument there's another emotional argument that you can make as a counter to that you know my dad is a farmer we live in a really small town of uh, about 150 people in Illinois. The grocery store closed in our town. And most of the people 
in that town are in poverty. Most of them are unemployed. Most of them are on some kind of government assistance. A lot of them don't even have cars or anything like that to even, to even drive around. It's a very, very poor town. And so when the grocery store closed, my dad said, well, we have to have a grocery store. Like there's people in this town. Some of them can't even get around. Like what are we going to do without a grocery store? The nearest one is going to be 15 minutes away from here. We can't do that. So he decided to buy the grocery store that was closing and run it. You know, employ six, seven people, something like that. Uh, keep the keep the store going all the time. You don't make a lot of money off of a grocery store, by the way. Uh, the margins on the the items at your grocery store are very, very thin. So he had that had that going, paying everyone a very fair wage, probably paying most people nine, ten, eleven dollars an hour, you know, depending on how good they were, which is how it should be. Dependent on the value that you bring to the job, the better the worker is, the more money they're going to get paid. Now, it's a crazy concept, but the better that the workers are, the more they're going to get paid. And then Illinois, which is where I'm from, they uh, decided they're going to institute their $15 an hour minimum wage. Then what does my dad do? He says, there is no possible way that this grocery store will be profitable at all if I'm paying all of these people $15 an hour. The value of what they're doing is literally not worth $15 an hour. Maybe it could be 12, something like that, but not 15. I'll lose money at 15. I'm going to have to raise all the prices in the store by like 40% to be able to pay everyone $15 an hour. Plus, this is a massive headache, tons of turnover with the employees in the store, managing all kinds of inventory all the time, takes all of your day, all of your nights to manage this place. I'm just going to close. I'm just going to sell. And that's what's happening. When Illinois announced that they were moving the $15 an hour, the only grocery store in that small town of 150 people decided that they were going to close. And one of the only places where those people could have employment is uh, no longer going to be there unless someone else decides to come in and take it over, which might happen. Hopefully it does. On top of that, also running a produce farm, you know, a hundred or so acres of produce and then in the thousands of acres on grain. But the produce farm during the summer employs 20, 25 people. And they're all making, he has to pay about $12, $13 an hour. Some of them are lower than that. And uh, of course, once again, they make the move to $15 an hour. They announced this uh, six months ago. And already he has said, there's no way I'm going to make any money if I have to pay these people $15 an hour. I'm not going to sell produce anymore. Already. Already this next growing season, that farm will be gone. Those 20 to 25 jobs that used to be there are gone. So you have to ask yourself, for all those people who are making 10 to $13 an hour, 9 to $13 an hour, are they better off now? Are they better off now that they don't have employment but those who do have employment are making $15 an hour. Are all of those people better off? The answer is no. They would be better off if they had the opportunity to work for the amount of money that they could get paid. We would all be better off. So there are all kinds of actual situations, 
things that happen on a daily basis that affect people. Decisions from our governments that we have. Local governments too. Local, the state, your federal, they all make decisions that affect people on a daily basis. And there are plenty of stories that we can all go out there and get. And we can talk about how terrible these regulations are. Your famous license to braid hair scenario. Those are all over the place. You talk about the taxes that come out of your paycheck. You think about, think about the fact that most marriages, most, most couples, their number one problem is financially related. The money that they make, you know, all of their bills, their income. What does it say that the number one problem that couples have, and we have a very high divorce rate, the number one problem that couples have is money, and we also find a way to forcefully take like 25% of everyone's money. Probably ends up being more than that once you factor in your sales taxes and property taxes and everything else. You're probably getting half the value of your money taken from you every single year. But then we also talk about how half of marriages end in divorce and the number one problem is financial. We're taking half of everyone's money. How much better would our society be if people were able to keep their money, if that tampered down a lot of the financial stresses that couples have, that people have, the, one of the number one stress in everyone's life. How, many, how much of that would go away if we stopped letting the government steal half of everyone's value? How much of it would go away? I'm not saying all of it would go away. I'm not saying that people wouldn't still make bad financial decisions and would still be hurting for money at some point in time. But some of that would go away. Some percentage of that would go away. What percentage of marriages would be able to stay together? What percentage of couples would be able to stay together? If you removed money as a stressor, I'm not saying remove money from our economy. I'm saying stop taking 50% of everyone's money through taxation in some way. How much of that would go away? How much better off would our society be if more couples stayed together? If more kids had two parents? What changes would that have throughout the society? What if we didn't reward people for being single parents through tax credits? What if we didn't reward you through earned income credits based on the amount of kids you had and whether or not you were a single parent? What if those incentives were taken out of our society? How much better off would it be overall? There are all kinds of actual emotional arguments that can be made for the ideas that we have. I'm not saying that I like making them because I don't like making decisions based on how I feel about something. But that is what most people do anyway. I feel like the government is not the proper entity to manage our lives for us. Now, I feel that based on evidence on history, on facts, on economics. But I feel that way still. 
So we have to find a way to get this message across to people in a way that they're actually going to listen to what you're saying. There are always emotional arguments that can be made, and people are trying to brush them off when you mention history. Are you telling me that there are not some true emotions about what has gone on in history in some of these governments around the world where hundreds of millions of people have been murdered or starved to death or the same thing? When you look at what happened in Russia with the kulaks where... Lenin was able to get people to blame the wealthy farmers in their society for all of their problems, that the reason that they didn't have anything was because the wealthy farmers had so much, and that's why they were having such a terrible time getting along, was able to demonize their profits off of having other people work for them. Eventually, if you had, if you earned any money that was not from your own direct labor, then you were labeled a kulak at that point in time. And he called them bloodsuckers, um, people who, you know, plunders and profit, uh, profiteers, things like that. And eventually, of course, the townspeople and the government rose up and killed all of the wealthy farmers, about a, a little over a million Kulaks were killed. There were actually directives to hang them in the streets so people would see them. So a million Kulaks died, and then because they were the wealthy farmers in their society, meaning they were the good farmers, the best farmers that there were in the society, about six million people starved to death in a famine a couple years after that. You can look up photos and see just how terrible it was around Russia and and Ukraine in that area. Some of these societies, including that one, they had to put up signs saying that it was wrong, it was wrong to eat humans. They had to remind people that it was a bad thing to eat humans and your family members. (laughs) Literally, just think about that for a minute. They had the post public service announcement. It's not a good idea to eat humans. Just let it, just letting everyone know. That's the kind of situation that they got in based on some of these ideas. The idea that the people who were profiting from their own land and had more than other people, that idea led to what happened after that. We don't even talk about Mao and Pol Pot. Mao who's credited with a a confirmed 78 million people. Everyone says it's more than that. We focus all our time on Hitler and the Holocaust, which was obviously terrible. When Mao killed like 13 or 14 times more people than that. For some reason, we just learned about Hitler. That's because that war can be classified as an ethnic cleansing as racism against a certain race of people and what happened with Lenin and Stalin and Mao and Pol Pot can be classified as people who hated the wealthy and then all those people died. It wouldn't, I was talking to my wife about this, you wouldn't be able to make a very good Hollywood movie where the victim is a rich person who people hate because they were profiting off of others. You're not going to make a good emotional argument with people. 
That's why you're not going to see any movies in Hollywood talking about what happened under Mao or Pol Pot or Stalin or Lenin. You can't have the victims be rich people. No way. You got to make a bunch of movies about how the victims are people who are only victimized because of their ethnicity. You have to make that movie. You can't make victims about the wealthy getting murdered. Come on. Who's going to care about that? So when we're talking to these people about all these problems, and they are problems, healthcare is too expensive. Some people don't make enough money to get by in their lives. Um, we've got all of these issues that everyone cares about. Hey, you know, it's probably not a great idea to take carbon out of the ground and put it into our air at really high rates. Probably not a great idea. But... Is it a better idea to completely crash our economy in an attempt to get that down to zero? No, it's not. So we have to admit that a lot of these are problems. We all have to agree that we agree with the same problems and then work on a way to solve those. And so what I wanted to tell you guys today is find an emotional situation. Find a story. People like stories. Find a story that will justify your viewpoint, your opinion. Make sure that your opinion is based on facts. Make sure it's based on facts and logic and economics. But then find a story that you can tell the people that will get past or at least mix in with their emotional thinking, with their decision-making that is based on emotions. You need to place another emotional story inside of that so they know that there could also be really bad things that could be very emotional that can come from the policies that they're pushing for. So that's what I'm going to leave you guys with today. Try and think about that just a little bit. Get on other people's levels whether that's up or down or whatever it is. Realize that people like us do not constitute a majority of the people in the world. People who think the way that we do do not constitute anything resembling a majority whatsoever. The Libertarian Party get got, what, 3% in the last election? And by the way, if you're from the Libertarian Party listening right now, don't let that fool you into thinking that more people are moving towards libertarianism or that the Libertarian Party is moving upwards. You got 3% of the vote because of the other two options that everyone else had. That's why you got so many more votes. I guarantee you if those were not the options, then you would not have hit that 3% number. I'm not saying that that's a good thing or a bad thing, but don't be fooled into thinking that you're moving in the right direction. Take all the other things into account. That's just my little sidebar for the Libertarian Party right there. There are still things that need fixed, okay? Find a way to argue with people, to present your opinions, and to tell a story that they can relate to, that they can care about. So they know that you're not just an evil, calloused monster who doesn't care about other people. So they don't write off whatever it is that you have to say because they just think that you're a terrible person. Why would I listen to anything that this person talks about? They're terrible. They don't care about others. They only care about themselves. They're completely selfish. At that point in time, not another word that you say afterwards is going to matter to that person whatsoever, no matter how correct it is, no matter how smart it is, no matter how well the math works out or whatever history has shown, nothing else that you say matters after that if they've decided 
that you're an evil, selfish person who only cares about yourself and you don't care about others. You have to get away from that being the view of people who think like we do. So find the story and tell it. Guys, go follow us on Instagram at Good Morning Liberty. Follow us on Twitter at Good AM Liberty. Look us up on Facebook, Good Morning Liberty. Go to our website, BernieLies.com, if you want to see the the opposite view of everything that Bernie offers up as a solution, what the actual solutions are to these problems. Because we have problems, people want a solution, we need to be offering those solutions. Go do all of those things. Uh, Have a great Thanksgiving. Um, And I guess we'll be back on Monday. We'll be back on Monday at that point in time. You guys have a great Thanksgiving break. You guys do all that stuff. Have a good day and a good morning, Liberty.